0: Listen up, sugar bottoms. As of this broadcast, as of February 26th, you have exactly five days to get your butts over to NorthSpokaneCBD.com to take advantage of 25% off with the discount code Lions that they have so graciously bestowed upon our listeners. The North Spokane Hemp Company has got all the flowers, all the tinctures, all the CBD oils, all the, uh, the things that you could want that are CBD infused to take care of you, your pets, your anxieties, your aches and pains, Whatever's ailing you, go to NorthSpokaneCBD.com, promo code LIONS, get over there now before it is too late.
1: Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture,
0: comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, hush puppies. Welcome to the show. This is Electric Liberty Land, and I am Brian McWilliams, and this is episode number 165. So if you want to go to the show notes for today's episode, which is an interview and discussion with Nick Gillespie, the uh, editor-at-large for Reason Magazine, go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL 165. Now, I am going to forego the current event stuff this week, but I promise you I will be back next week with a rip-roaring show. This interview with Nick came at a perfect time to talk about South Park, and we get deep into some uh, very interesting, very meta-libertarian discussions about Rick and Morty and more. But we are also doing the debate recap tonight, so that will be posted, I believe, tomorrow. So set your scanners on stunned for what is sure to be a bloodletting shit show of a Democratic debate. So uh, good timing, because I have to save my voice to do that. And uh, of course, every time we do these debate recaps, and there's like one a week now, our listens from my show take a hit. So listen, you scroll down your podcast feed, you click Electric Liberty Land, and you listen to it. I'll be damned if I'm losing listens, because we're putting out so much fantastic content for you guys, which you can support by going to... Patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. All right, now let's hop into it. So as mentioned, I am here with Nick Gillespie. Of course, many of you are already familiar with Nick and uh, and a lot of you have come over actually from uh, Reason and Nick and Matt Welch touting us on the podcast, the Reason Roundtable recently. So I want to welcome Nick Gillespie, who is editor at large of Reason. And of course, Nick was also uh, managing and head editor and you, know, every, you played every role imaginable at Reason, Nick. So welcome aboard and uh, good to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, first time. I know you've been on with Mark before, but uh, first time on Electric Liberty Land, which is exciting. And, you know, I, I felt it was a perfect time to have you on because, you know, on this show, I talk a lot of current event stuff and that kind of dominates a lot of it. But when I initially launched this show, it was supposed to talk about culture and comedy fairly equally in addition to current news. And that has fallen to the wayside. But we had an opportunity to talk about it in specific regard to South Park. Um as you had written a rebuttal to uh, a journalist, I guess she calls herself a journalist, she's a writer uh, and a comedian, but a woman named Dana Schwartz, who had gone and, and gotten some Twitter attention for bad-mouthing South Park. And I'll do a quick read of a few of the tweets, and then I want you to uh, to give us a little bit of insight into your response and your rebuttal article. Um, so here's, here's Dana Schwartz's, these are three tweets, especially that you had mentioned in your article. So she had said, in retrospect, it seems impossible to overstate the cultural damage done by South Park, the show that portrayed earnestness as the only sin and taught that mockery is the ultimate inoculation against all criticism. My point was that South Park seemed to teach that it was always cooler to be reactionary and contrarian, and anyone who criticizes anything is offended, and that's the real problem. Wonder if that's the message those fans absorbed. And then her third tweet, people saying, quote, they make fun of everyone, unquote, that is my point. South Park is a political show, but one whose message is both sides are equally terrible. So the only correct thing to do is nothing while mocking it all from your position of intellectual superiority. So, Nick, hmm. what uh, what about that spurred you into action? <laughs> was it purely the yeah. the furor that was created, or it was it something deep seated within you? As I said, uh, knowing that you've been a defender of the show for quite some time.
1: Oh, I, I guess maybe I'm just uh, reacting, you know, uh, because uh, that's what South Park taught me how, uh, what to do since coming on air in the late '90s. Um, well, I, you know, it, there's a, there's a couple of things involved, and when I think about South Park, uh, you know, there I think there are at least two levels in which it has been to uh, to my mind unambiguously a social good. And again, we're in, I think it's a, or a, it's the 23rd season of South Park. So this is as much a fixture in American life as, you know, the Peanuts comic strip, which mm-hmm. I've likened it to in the past, or Gunsmoke, or, you know, Meet the Press. I mean, this is a true institution, and these institutions, you know, deserve to be criticized, but that we also have to recognize why they become uh, fixtures. And it's, it typically is because... There are striking some deep uh, mystic chord of memory uh, within uh, you know, within the American population. But I think uh, South Park works on two function, uh, two levels, both of which are really positive. And the first one is it's part of a series of shows, I think, that um, either debuted or became really defining of the 1990s in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And I'm thinking of shows like The Simpsons, which mm-hmm. started in the late 80s, but uh, also Beavis and Butthead. Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand—they're all good examples of 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 teaching Americans at the exact moment that we were being uh, overloaded with um, entertainment options and with information because of the mainstream of cable TV, the rise of the internet, and kind of non-gatekeeper information. You know, we went from being a society, and you know, uh, it's you know, it's kind of embarrassing to even talk about this stuff because I forget that you know it's it, so, you know a lot of people just don't have an experience or a memory of a time where you couldn't get all of the information basically all of the information that you want at your fingertips and that the you know, when I was growing up, I was born in the, in 1963. So I'm like a very late baby boomer. And for most of my life and early adulthood, at least, the problem was not too much information. It was too little information. And I think about that a lot in, a, in the cultural arena. Forget about, you know, economics or politics or something like that, or, or learning how to, you know, uh, shopping for a car. You couldn't get any real independent information about what a car costs the dealer who was selling it to you, et cetera.
0: Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, by God, the amount of time I, I remember growing up and I'm only, I'm about 10 years uh, younger than you. So I I still remember the days of, you know, my family didn't have a modem in the house, you know, until I was 18 or something. So yeah, I I have the same experience, but I remember thinking to myself, you know, as the generations go on, my grandfather would still go you know, to dealership to dealership or to TV store to TV store shopping for that best deal, even when that era did come around where you could go online and shop. And I remember thinking, what is his time worth? But it is just that people did not have that experience and they were more comfortable with that. So, you know, to your point, there was, it was far more difficult and you did not have any, anywhere near the amount of information to compare and contrast things as you do today.
1: Well, and, and, you know, in turn, I I think a lot about it because I I used, uh, before I I, uh, became a political journalist, I was a music, uh, kind of like an entertainment uh, journalist or reporter. And, you know, growing up in the 70s uh, and for most of the 80s, you couldn't get information about your favorite bands, so, you know, not even like when when did their albums come out, what was their full discography, you know, uh, who played on what, et cetera. Like, it was just really hard to get any basic information about stuff. And um, in the 90s, because of cable, because of the internet, because of the breakdown of kind of mainstream gatekeeper cultural institutions, we had this massive, you know, flood, a Johnstown flood of information and of sources and of things to pick through for the first time. So we went from being in a, you know, a, a kind of famine to this incredible rich feast. And what shows like South Park did is that they taught you you know on a very fundamental level that you you know that most information that you get is self interested it It is either you know explicitly trying to sell you something mm-hmm. or implicitly that the people who are providing it don't even understand their own biases and their own uh, kind of uh, prejudices or their inability to really give you a, a a broad perspective about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think you see again and again that that's one of the main functions of a show like South Park, and it's done it phenomenally, is that it 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 forced all of us to kind of reckon with that, whether it is politicians or celebrities or businessmen again and again, and episode after episode, you see uh, the characters grappling with, you know, having too much information, all of which might sound perfectly well, or all of which is complete horse uh, <laughs> manure. But people, you know, act as if it's legitimate and unbiased and things like that. So on one very fundamental level, I think South Park is one of those shows, and this is why it's still popular and why it's still kind of in the firmament, is that it taught us how to deal with competing truth claims, with uh, oddball assertions, with a world in which you as an individual or, you know, one of the characters, oftentimes it's Stan or Kyle, but they know something is wrong and everybody else is either in on the con or they are uh, blinded by... right
0: they bought into idiots. the the you know, the, whatever the new mania is going through the news right. cycle and, and you can and they do do a fantastic job of that. painting mean you know, Randy obviously is a, the poster right. boy for this on the show yeah. uh, Stans father always buys into whatever's going on out there and always is the first person to to want to get the troops together and go march on something. But yeah, they, South Park did give us a BS filter and a mirror at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's a fine combing to figure out what is a per, a, you know, pertinent to you and what is what should be believed or questioned. And, you know, that's one of the things that kind of bothered me about Dana Schwartz is saying that, oh, well, you know, calling everything, uh, making fun of everything and, and becoming a nihilist is, you know, something to be ashamed of. And well, I don't think South Park is nihilistic, you yeah. do need to have that certain, uh, you know, take a step back from yourself and realize Look, there are motives behind the news coming at us. There are motives behind our own actions and everyone else's actions. And it is, in fact, a good, a universal good to be able to witness that and say, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of seeing the shades here on what's coming at me, and I'm able to filter my perspective accordingly.
1: Yeah, and, and then, you know, on the, the, the second level is this question of does, you know, does revealing things, does kind of pouring acid over every belief system, whether it's environmentalism or Mormonism mm-hmm. or – uh, you know, uh, foodism or whatever, you know, because in, again, in episode after episode, you know, some of the most cherished beliefs of the individual characters just get revealed as silly or hopeless. <laughs> does that, does that result in a lack of involvement or investment in the community or, or anything approaching nihilism? And I think one of the things that the show, you know, and this almost reduces it uh, to a, uh, I was going to say to a cartoon. It obviously <laughs> is but it's a kind of cartoon parable, but you know, again and again, it's that you know, um, you know, the 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 characters um, come face to face with something, uh, you know, and uh, what what they believe in is revealed as untrue, and that doesn't mean that they give up or just mock stuff. It actually, they continue to live and love and learn in a way that you know, in early on, it would be typically again Stan or Kyle kind of reciting a parable of what they learned in the you know in this episode or in this thirty-minute show. Um, you know but they they again come back uh, you know again and again to the same messages which is that being honest being empathetic being nice Uh, Having love and feeling, uh, you know, and charity for your common man, uh, and also recognizing, uh, you know, that people's behavior is separate from their intentions, both Mm -hmm. good and bad. You know, this is one of the most profoundly moral shows, and I think it spurs people to action rather than inhibits them from that. And you know, when we look at this, it's you know, and and something that I agree with, um, you know, that uh, Schwartz said. Was that she? She wasn't sure if she could blame the creators of a show for the way that she perceives her audience act. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's totally true. You know, as a as a producer, as a writer, as a creator, as a um, you know the maker of something, you put it out into the marketplace, commercial or intellectual, ideological, whatever, and then people make of it what what they will. But you know, over the course of um, South Park's lifespan, you know, people and particularly younger people, and I would argue, particularly men and young men, have become much more um, open and involved and uh, vulnerable on a certain mm-hmm. level. You know, one of the things that, again, feeling like a you know a, an old man here, <laughs> is that how much you know there there are extremes, of course, and, and cancel culture, you know, is part of this, and social media may or may not play into it, or, or at least give it voice. Um, You know, there are people who shout down everything, but the fact is, is that people are so much nicer and kinder, um, I think, in general, in America, and certainly outside of the arena of politics. Politics Mm -hmm. is getting harsher and more polarized, and people, I think, are arguing in bad faith or without a recognition that they could ever be wrong in something that they have a commitment to. Um, but you know, South park, uh, you know, has, has helped create a different way of being in the world, which I think is particularly good. And I think it's particularly good for young men who were, um, you know, uh, traditionally not expected to have an emotions, not expected to show remorse, not expected to be particularly self-critical. Um, mm-hmm. I am old enough to have grown up in an era when, uh, you know, smart men, smart boys, genius boys grew up into smart, genius men who, you know, were never to be questioned or were rarely to be questioned. And that isn't the way the world is anymore. And I think, you know, uh, South Park in Mayway way exemplifies that and it helped deconstruct the myth of authority, the myth of genius, the myth of uh, you know the true believer, kind of uh, brought to a mass market. So yeah, that's, you think- you know that's my spiel. Um, you know, <laughs> South Park as 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 you know, it's part of commercial culture, it's popular culture, it's art, and it performs, I think, a profound social function that we should be celebrating.
0: Well, without a doubt, question everything is something that, you know, it seems like especially that was always the culture coming up for these younger generations, question everything, you know, and yeah. and and even now you see, especially people on the left saying that the youth are the, the ones who will lead us on this way. And the show, the show really pushes that concept of question all authority. And, you know, by virtue of extending that and saying, if someone is more on the feminist bent and I, I might be projecting Dana Schwartz, but she wrote an entire book, uh, what was the name of her book? The White Man's Guide to White Male Writers of the Western Canon. So I think she probably tends to go towards the feminist side of things. But you would think that a show that has encouraged questioning everything of taking down the male authority figures, as you had mentioned, or taking down the male genius figures or taking down just a general authoritarian system, which by de fact, you know, it would be a patriarchy for the pe- feminist mindset anyway, that it would be appreciated especially in the way that they do try to position people so that they take another point of view. they try. I mean, I think South Park does an excellent job of putting people in the other side of an argument and saying, you know, I mean, half the time South Park, they start with one position and they end up completely flip-flopping by the end of the episode in a comedic fashion. So right. showing the two sides, you'd think that it would have more sympathy from people that are trying to challenge authority or trying to challenge the patriarch or whatever it might be.
1: I, I, I agree with that. And yeah, I, I think um, South Park has also uh, exemplifies um, a concept which I admittedly have not uh, really fully thought through. But um, let me try it out on you. And uh, yeah, this, see is the, it, me, this is
0: the trust me, this is the place to do it. Throwing crap okay. against the wall is all yeah. I do for an hour every week.
1: OK, so, um, you know, we've all heard the uh, or we know the concept of ironic distance that when, uh, you know, and, and it's related to gallows humor. It's when things are so bad, you make a joke to kind of evacuate the scene of, of discomfort or of tragedy or right. uh, you know, uh, uh,
0: darkness. And South and, Park has had that. What are they, they had like the 10 year anniversary of I think it was nine eleven or something and that they just they said on the episode to go, well, we can finally joke about 9 yeah. everybody everybody. They had confetti. <laughs>
1: Right. And, uh, you know, and it's, but there's, I think there's another concept that has been at work in American culture in in a pretty strong way, at least since the mid 1980s. And I, I would call it something like ironic nearness, which is that instead of trying to get out of a situation of, of abstracting yourself emotionally or cognitively by making a joke or by saying oh well i don't really believe that anyway there's a way of joking about stuff that keeps you in the situation that, that allows you to stay you know in the kitchen when it gets really hot mm. and i actually think that's that's what south park is doing uh, again and again that it, it you know by joking it is not um, by joking about things that are sacrosanct and holy to all people, you know, to many people, including the creators of the show and inclu- including the audience of the show. It's not distancing us from all of that. It's allowing us to, you know, kind of kind of stay in that moment and you know keep our hands on the hot stove longer than we would otherwise. And I and I think you see this, and uh, it often gets. Um, that kind of attitude or that kind of temperament gets uh, mistaken for a kind of nihilism or a, uh, you know, a blankness uh, and a void that I don't think is there. You see it in things like, uh, you know, ESPN when it started as a sports network in the 80s. Um, you know, it had an ironic kind of sensibility about the people it obsessed over. You know, it was mm-hmm. the first time in sports casting or or in, you know, kind of sports reporting which, uh, was always, you know, kind of dumb and lunk headed, but super serious and super sober. You never made <laughs> right. fun of Mickey Mantle. And you know, you never made fun of, you know, these these modern day gods who were, you know, were man children, et cetera. And ESPN changed the way we thought about that. And they were super fans. And this is also true of rock music. Mm-hmm. And when you when when you think of all of the, you know something, even like SpongeBob SquarePants, where like you can make fun of rock music, even as you you know, are absolutely immersed in it and love it to death. One of the things that is great about South Park, uh, and I would I would uh, extend this to you know the entire oeuvre of uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, is that they are so great at parodying things, not because they hate them, but because they love them. You know whether it's Broadway musicals mm-hmm. and. Have the whole Book of Mormon, which is not simply a critique of Mormonism; that is actually an embrace of what they see as its central, you know, urgent message about being good and loving people. Mm-hmm. But the form of Broadway, and in Team America, you, you know, the opening production number of the Rent-style play um, that's in that where you know where everyone has AIDS is phenomenal because it's so perfectly you know like the the only person who could write and produce and execute such a perfect parody of a Broadway show is somebody who loves them you know to yeah. their absolute every you know to the subatomic level and you know that's a place where we are in american popular culture and i think it's a better place to be than the old way where you could not make fun you could not play with you could not question the forms and formats of, you know, whether it's sports or politics or art or whatever. Um, you know, you just had to kind of uh, either distance yourself from it or hate it or or not participate. And, you know, we're in a world now, and I think South Park exemplifies this, of where we have this kind of ironic nearness. And it's it's better. It, it extends conversations. It doesn't shut them down. And that that's, again, you know, one of the things where I think a lot of critiques of of shows uh, like South Park, miss the uh, you know they just miss the boat.
0: Hey everybody, let's pop out for a quick second to give a shout out to another libertarian podcast which we are fans of here. They are supporters of our program and great guys, Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. Uh, they believe in a simple truth: you own yourself your inherent right to life, liberty, the pursuit of meaning, and they believe that free market capitalism saves the world. They are sarcastic, they're rational, they're objective, they're pretty damn funny, and they are in every day of the week podcast. So when you're jonesing for a fix between Electric Liberty Land and Felony Friday, I hope that you will definitely check them out. Hit that subscribe button. They also have a message that's more compassionate, guys. They want to change the libertarian message from selfishness to one of compassion. We are libertarians because we want to help people. And these are two guys that have some uh, very specific insight as well into the healthcare industry. They have their own healthcare IT company that they founded. So a lot of great insight there, guys. Check them out. New podcasts every day of the week. Just search for Good Morning Liberty on the uh, the podcast app of your choice, or go to lol.gmlpodcast.com. Again, lol.gmlpodcast.com for a quick link to uh, everything they got going on. All right, check them out. Well, I would hope that we are right in that saying this ironic nearness is something that is more pronounced now because one of, one of my biggest problems right now within just dialogue and obviously political discourse is conquering everything at the moment. It's hard to talk yep. about even a, a television show that's apolitical, you know, and it has nothing to do with it without somehow getting politics certainly involved and reading into it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I, I would hope that this kind of ironic nearness plays a role. And, and like you said, being able to joke about topics that are of the utmost serious to try to break down walls. I mean, I just, I was speaking at the, uh, the actually, well, Matt Walsh was there as well, but at the California Libertarian Convention, and I did a, a just a brief talk that I put together, but basically on how libertarians need to try to use comedy to try to take comedy back in a way, but to forward conversations. Because so often, you know, when it comes to these deep-seated beliefs and whether or not they are re- you know, reasonable or if they are the right. uh, cause du jour, as South Park always mocks, You know, trying to get people to listen to what you're saying is so difficult and maybe having a bit more of that ironic nearness, as you put it, to be able to go, look, this is a little funny. Can we both laugh at this and then forward that conversation rather than just screaming at each other and shutting down completely?
1: I I agree. And, uh, you know, to keep it uh, kind of uh, trained inward, uh, you know, to the libertarian movement, which, uh, you know, we're all a part of, and I suspect most of your audience as well. Yep. Libertarians need to uh, you know, be able to laugh at their own excesses, I think. And we need to, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's not to not believe anything, uh, but rather to kind of acknowledge, you know, that we can be ridiculous kind of versions of ourselves. And, um, you know, how, how can we, uh, you know, lighten up a little bit so that we can at least begin to have a conversation about the things that really profoundly disturb and
0: divide us. Yeah. Well, one of my key uh, jokes in many of the talks I do is I get, you know, I go to the audience. And I tell them to say, look to your left, look to your right, look behind you. Nobody likes any of you, you know, and it's kind of like that old right. collegiate professor, th- professor thing. One of you will fail this class, wow. but it is true. And it always gets a laugh because at the end of the day, I mean, we are a, a pretty uh, ordinary bunch of assholes. And the better we know ourselves, the better we're going to be able to communicate with other people that we know see us that way. So we need to start to chip away at that and be maybe a little bit more self-deprecating, I think, would really come in handy for the libertarian, the average libertarian out on the street.
1: Yeah, I I mean, there's no question about that. And also, you know, I I think part of what has been happening over the past 30 years or so you know, in a big way, in a profound way, and I think most of us live this, and we get this implicitly, but perhaps not not in all circumstances but because of uh, what I would argue is a uh, a rise in the level of education and the mm-hmm. rise of a uh, kind of disposable income uh, and and especially in technological innovation, you know the distance between the kind of um, you know high priest and congregant has shrunk you know between the creator yeah. and the and the consumer you know producer and consumer creator and audience member and all of that and the gulf has 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 shrunk and also the stage has been lowered so that we're all kind of in the same mosh pit uh so to speak and you know that that calls for a different type of communication and it's one that is much less Uh, based on hierarchy and status or even expertise and saying, look, I have all the answers, now shut up and listen to me right now. And follow what I say. Rather, you know, we demand this, um, you know, from the people we see who used to be high up in our lives. You know, whether it's a college professor, a priest, a uh, a doctor, a lawyer. You know, we treat them more like they are our employees now, uh, and and I think that's good and right. And generally speaking, you know, that's completely beneficial. That you know, authority has been deconstructed and demystified. Uh, uh, which is good and we also all as individuals I think feel more empowered to to question authority But also to assert that we have some, you know knowledge Especially about our own lives and that we, you know, we want to have dialogues rather than monologues. I think as libertarians We need to think about that, you know The idea here is not merely to express our you know the purest form of our beliefs that we can in every situation uh, you know, it's rather to persuade. And that, you know, persuasion and dialogue are, you know, those two things go together. You're rarely going to persuade somebody by hectoring them or by, you know, cl- you know telling them off the bat that you are completely insane and stupid, socialistic, uh, authoritarian, nihilist, whatever. And, uh, you know, to the extent that humor helps with that, to the extent with a, a healthy form of self-deprecation, Uh, or self-examination and also speaking for oneself rather than projecting the truth onto everybody around you. I think these are all good things. I am, uh, you know, I'm excited as as sickened as I am by the kind of state of politics now. And, you know, to the extent I, you know, I like, and I know we're going to be talking about Rick and Morty, so Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, be talking about the multiverse <laughs> timelines and things like that. But you know, it's like what kind of world did we wake up in where it looks like the general election may be between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. It's, you know, like this is, you know, this isn't the the, the this isn't the timeline I chose. But to get through that and you know and and as you were saying, politics has has taken over everything. I mean yep. it is you know, that somebody left the Lid off the bottle of bleach and it's just pouring out all over everything and kind of ruining things. Um, we need to be able. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is that you know I I actually think that libertarianism, you know, properly understood or or in a in a in a general way, is the you know is a very powerful, positive, engaging, inclusive vision of how to get through life, you know, and and enjoy yourself and live in a healthy, prosperous, fun, fair world, and so you know, I'm kind of excited over, you know, in, in the near future, because even as, you know, I think, you know, I know whoever wins in in November will likely be the worst president in American <laughs> history, uh, you know, and I feel like we're coming off in the 21st century, we've just been setting records for like, you know, terrible president after terrible president after terrible president. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. But I think the silver lining might be that people are finally going to uh, be forced to kind of consider the alternative, you know, to consider right. the idea that instead of putting more power into failed institutions and systems of authority and power, uh, you know, like maybe, maybe we act more like we're each in control of our own lives and, mm-hmm. and we should be demanding more control over the choices that matter most to us. So, you know, in that sense, uh, you know, I think, again, South Park, uh, you know, South Park ends up being kind of a help, helpful guide as well as a prod and and an inspiration and an aspiration.
0: Yeah. Well, it is fascinating that we've got Donald Trump and most likely Bernie Sanders in an information age, right? We're talking about how there's information at our fingertips. We have all of this, you know, we can easily research and find out. And yet, these are the two we end up with. With all of the information in the world, these two idiots is who are going to yeah. be buying to run the most powerful country or nation in the, on the planet, it just is mind-boggling, and to your point about libertarianism coming into play here, I also have hope for the future. Not this, not necessarily this election cycle. Although I, I do right. think that probably it looks like Hornberger will be the candidate right now, and I do think he's an effective communicator. But more so in a broader scale of. Because we can expose these people so easily, because the two parties are being exposed, I mean, the underheaded dirty tricks, the behind the scenes, you know, Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, I'm excited, I'm going to watch the debate tonight, and I'm excited to see these people turn on Bernie Sanders, they're going to bleed him out with leeches and knives and everything else, because they're going to expose the underbelly of what they don't want everybody to see, which is they are essentially the same they both are power mongers. And once people see that, and you're seeing it with their Bernie bros, right, coming around to see, you know, being called Nazis and then having all these people go off on them, that I think they will look to a third alternative. And unlike with Ron Paul, of course, I've inspired me, but I think that was an example, as was Donald Trump, of people, a certain amount of those supporters were simply anti-establishment I think finally the wall will crumble down enough for people to go, you know what, I'm not just anti establishment, but I want real solutions. It's not enough to just yeah. say hell no anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Um, because, uh, you know what, we we don't need a, uh, you know, God, this is awful. And it was even before my day, but it still persists. You know, the Who song, um, um, uh, blech, and now I'm having a senior moment. Uh, <laughs> Of um, uh, you know, meet the uh, the new boss, same as the old boss. Oh uh, won't, yeah, yeah. Don't get fooled again. Right. Uh, you know that. What what we're coming to, uh, I think culturally, I hope, uh, is a recognition that you know swapping in new leaders with the same system intact basically the same system of power systems of power isn't good enough what we need is a different structure and that we need one that you know to talk uh, kind of in in internet sense is one that is more networked rather than one that is more kind of broadcast or hierarchical like where each person in the system, has more control over the information and choices uh, that they make in in every possible direction, um, as opposed to just taking over the you know the machine. And it's like, oh well, the elevator will run smoother, or faster, or more efficiently if I'm the one punching the buttons or pulling the levers. Mm-hmm. No, we we you know we need to get off of that elevator and and create a new system for you know going up and down or how you know however we want to get around in a building and uh, you know I, I think it 's understandable why Trump and sanders and it 's not just Sanders I mean throughout the Democratic party most he's, he might be the purest titration of something, but all, most of the Democrats are kind of talking about uh, in a similar way to him of doubling tripling quadrupling down on institutions that were and ideas and policies that were created in the 20th century in some cases i think with some of the social security stuff in the late 19th century even but you know they it both sanders and trump are are profoundly backward looking and they're trying yep. to control you know, they're trying to control a decentralized network world in which there are lots of different power centers and they're constantly shifting, you know, they're trying to control and modulate all this with a bunch of tools that haven't, uh, you know, that haven't been effective in decades and just are not native to this, uh, you know, to this century. So they're going to fail. And I think, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the reasons why, um Uh, you know, somewhat uh, uh, okay with the way things are shaking out uh, in the major party level is that you're going to see two pure uh, kind of instances or instantiations of old backward-looking models of governance, one on the right and one on the left. And I think that opens up the possibility for libertarians to, you know, get more of a hearing. Mm. I, um, generally speaking, you know, I, I have over the course of my time, and I've been a reason now for something like 26 years, I've become less, um, or I've become more convinced that libertarian is, you know, it's more of a direction. It's more of an adjective. It's more of Mm. a sensibility or a temperament than it is a, you know, a kind of concise set of policies. Or positions on certain things. And I think as long as, you know, I think more people are getting fed up with a kind of right-wing variant and a left-wing variant of, I'm going to be able to save you or, you know, just follow what I say and we'll punish our enemies and, you know, do what (laughs) I say and we'll all be good. You know, and people are more interested in kind of individualizing uh, you know their lives, uh, yeah. and what are the systems? Uh, you know whether it's cultural, whether it's political, whether it's economic, uh, you know, et cetera, that allow for that. And those solutions are inherently, uh, I think, libertarian. You know, they're about giving more choice, and more autonomy, and more possibilities to individuals, and less to these aggregated power centers. Uh, you know, whether it's the federal government or you know, particular corporations that often work hand and fist with the government. Oh,
0: without a doubt. Yeah, the corporate, I think people are trying to see, or are starting to see at least the the overlay in, in big government and corporatism. But yep. also, you know, you hit on an interesting concept and, you know, talking about libertarianism as a guiding core principle, uh, uh, a moral compass more than a political entity or political right. party. Maybe we just need to be a church. Maybe we should forget all of this <laughs> other nonsense yeah. Just become the church of liberty, right? And then that way we can we can forward these moral compasses along. They people don't have, you know, people can take them and and uh, roll them out in whatever organizations they see fit, whatever parts of life they see fit. But either way, it will be the guiding light, and a society will be the better for
1: it. Yeah, and I <laughs> I, I do like the uh, you know the the uh, metaphor, the analogy you use there of uh, of a compass. Oh. Um, you know, because that also. Uh, one of the things I think that has happened as, as you know, I think um, Republicans and Democrats, liberals, conservatives, progressives, and and libertarians too, like, as things have become more polarized, um, we've all become much more brittle and kind of uh, uh, kind of demanding and pissy in the way that we define our ideology. And it pains me when, um, you know, libertarians, like, you know, you get nine out of 10 of whatever a person says, these are the 10 most, issues is to be a libertarian, you get nine out of 10 and it's like, I'm sorry, but you, you've been voted off the island <laughs> it's not pure enough. And which isn't to say that anything, you know, anything can be libertarian, but, you know, we need to, uh, we need to be thinking about how do we, you know, how do we engage more people and how do we, how do we reset, you know, kind of the compass or the, orient the map so that we're moving towards more freedom rather than less freedom.
0: Yeah. Well, that's it's a good segue into talking about Rick and Morty. And I'll give you a couple of different things to think about here. I sure. mean, one is, you know, in a broader sense, and this has always fascinated me about Rick and Morty, which I have said is one of the most libertarian shows on television, which is amazing considering the fact that the people, Justin Raimondo and uh, I've got a blank on, and uh, Matt Harmon are some of the, There's are not Roman, you're, no, Yeah, not, not Justin Raimondo. I, I always do that. I do the anti-war. <laughs> <and> it's <laughs> Justin Royland, yes, I always, I always sub yeah. in <laughs> now. Past, uh, rest in peace, uh, editor of Anti War. Um, right. Yeah, but you know, Matt Harmon or Dan Harmon, pardon me. Uh, yeah, uh, and Justin Royland are two of the. They're absolute leftists. You know, they're they're progressive leftists. But yet, Rick and Morty as a whole, at its core, has some of the most libertarian values you'll ever see in mass media. You know, you've got yeah. Rick, who is he is a individual through and through. You know, he absolutely does not want to be controlled, wants to, as you said, rejects the systems that are in place. And on another level, you know, one thing I took away from the episode that I, I tweeted uh, about uh, when we were discussing back and forth on this, setting it up, in the episode, the Rickshank Redemption, I think it's called, is the one where he brings down an entire government by, number one, destroying their fiat currency and, and changing it to zero because it's not hard backed by anything. And number two... The Citadel of Ricks. I want to get your take on this because the Citadel of Ricks is this commune of all Ricks from all different galaxies, right? But yet they still have governance. And at the end of the day, they're still effed up. So, does that teach us the lesson, whether it's cognitive or not, in the minds of Dan and, uh, and Justin? Do they acknowledge that no matter who is leading us in these systems, it's still going to be corrupted and it's still going to be broken?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I also think uh, I guess it's the final episode of season three. Uh, you know, where there is an Obama character. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that that episode is a critique of, uh, specifically of Obama foreign policy, but also kind of arrogance mm-hmm. and the uh, the pretense of knowledge. You know, and in, in a to use uh, F. A. Hayek uh, kind of language on that, I I think you know what you see in that show, um, and this again, I, I I mean it's interesting to talk about, you know what. I you know, and I, I know very little about the creators of the show, and in a way, I don't care for the reasons I kind of sketched out before. You know, once you create something and you put it out there, it's really it's for the world to interpret, mm-hmm. and it becomes what individual readers say it is. You know, say or it means what what individual uh, uh, consumers or or groups of consumers say it means, in, in some profound way, um, but. The the very idea of the multiverse, which you know that show is kind of uh, is predicated upon, it it forces us to realize that all of our choices, uh, you know, whether they're good choices or bad choices, uh, ignorant you know ones made in ignorance or ones after studying something and expertise, are subject to revision and to uh, change as more knowledge becomes available, and that there is always unintended consequences to all mm-hmm. of our actions, but that there are always options, and that we should you know we're never we're never fully finished as an individual or a society where uh, we always can learn from taking other perspectives and thinking things through um, to me that is a profoundly you know small l libertarian insight and it mm-hmm. shares you know we're in a kind of golden age if we're you know, if the idea of ironic nearness makes any sense, I think we're also living in a kind of Philip K. Dick universe, Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, the science fiction novelist who... One of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, whose first uh, novel, Man in the High Castle, was made into what I thought was a tremendous uh, show that really was very different and and ultimately, I think, better than his early 60s novel of the same name. Uh, On Amazon Prime, right? Yeah, uh, which yep. has concluded, uh, or I think the you know the the show uh, dropped last season. Uh, it's fine, or you know, recently at the, at the end of the series. But you know that it takes place in a uh, a future where uh, the Axis has won World War II, uh, and you know, but fundamentally, what it talks about are the possibility of different timelines that people in one reality can kind of learn about and actually go to and bring back knowledge and mindsets and even technology from these other. Uh, universe is uh, that comes up again and again and is played for laughs and Rick and Morty, but it is, you know, it is, it is this pay in both to, you know, kind of free will and autonomy and, and the, you know, never settling for the situation you find yourself in, as well as recognizing the contingency of all that we know and hold dear, that it can go away automatically, that it is, uh, you know, that we always are in a process of building and changing and revising and, and getting closer. And to me, you know, and this might be getting too meta, this all, um, you know, it strikes me as very similar to the way that the Austrian School of Economics talks about markets and not just commercial markets, but markets and knowledge where we're constantly, uh, you know, what we know to be true, you know, absolutely true, metaphysically true, gets revealed the next minute as something (laughs) that is completely erroneous or just irrelevant to how we live today.
0: So, you know, uh, I love that you're tying these two together, you know, by the way. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, that is an absolutely brilliant point. And that, yeah, these systems that we're putting in place absolutely when we see how humans actually interact completely fall apart. So how dare we presume to plan yeah, ahead in this such a in such a manner with so many other people's money?
1: <laughs> right. Well, and that's for sure. And but you know, but there's also that uh you know the fact and this shows up in like every episode, you know, because Rick is always like, uh, you know, we gotta, you know, we have a mission, we have something that we absolutely have to do and yeah. stop or create or whatever is that all of this living in a, you know, in a kind of contingent world or a contingent universe that may not even be the real one, you know, that defines us, we still have to act. So, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh as I was growing up, I uh, you know, I stumbled probably first into existentialism via Albert Camus and uh The Stranger and his later works, uh, you know, before kind of becoming uh, uh, formally introduced to kind of libertarian political ideas and things like that. But the two seem to me to be somewhat related. And you know, again, this might be a real hop skip and a jump through a wormhole to pop up in, you know, places like South Park and Rick and Morty. But um you know that uh, we both know that every decision that we're making is incomplete and is going to be completely at some point revealed to be foolish or wrong or erroneous or dangerous or or you know harmful, but that we also must act all the time knowing all of that and that you know what are what are the some of the implications of that and it is you know that when you when you have empathy when you try to do the right thing when you try to uh, you know for yourself you own yourself and your own decisions but you do try to to cause as little damage and harm to other people, you know, these are all things that I think are, you know, kind of profoundly and deeply libertarian with a small L. And these are the, ultimately the pre-political, pre-partisan, certainly messages that we need to be selling at a time like this. I, you know, I mean, L, you know, like I can remember dying, you know, as a kid thinking about what is the 21st century going to be like? And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, on a certain level, it has far outstripped any of my imagination, just the idea that we're, you know, we're talking about shows that we watch, you know, via, you know, personal you know, uh, computers that fit into our pocket and that we watch at any time in any place. You know, the world is a uh, is just a world of marvels and inventions that keep getting better and better. That's all great, and I couldn't imagine most of the shit that we, you know, that we have that we take for granted.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, and
1: on another level, it's like my God, you know, we are debating Medicare for all. We're debating a Bismarckian, like maximizing a Bismarckian welfare state Mm -hmm. 150 years after it was created. And, you know, and 50 years after any country has been able to figure out a way to pay for it over the long (laughs) haul, you know, it's, uh, you know, and where you have somebody like Donald Trump, who is a rock ribbed Republican now. Pushing through, you know, uh, government-funded, uh, uh, you know, child, uh,
0: child, right, yeah, child care purposes, for everyone, yeah.
1: Uh, talking about never touching Social Security and Medicare, which is an old Reagan trope. Who, you know, who was a Republican who called himself a New Deal Democrat. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have universal benefits for everything at the precise moment. You know that we we can't even. You know, we're we're giving more and more money, free money, away to old people who are the rich, you know, among the richest people in American society. Like, none of this adds up. I mean, politically, we're really, you know, in in the swamp, uh, you know, I think technologically and in many other ways. And around the globe, we're actually doing pretty well. You know, people people are being, uh, you know, markets are winning a kind of lived liberalism of, of, of government receding and individuals' Uh, and, vol- and voluntary exchange actually taking over. I'm, I'm bowled over by the uh, fact that in 2018, according to the Brookings Institution and demographers at the UN and elsewhere, for the first time, 50% or more of the world's population lived at middle class or higher standards. Like, wow, yeah. you know, if, if I mean, I can remember all of the talks of how there were going to be mass famines because we couldn't feed people and there were going to be die-offs because of war and all of this kind of stuff. We're, you know, we are in many ways in a fantastic world if we would only recognize it. Uh, and at the same token, you know, we, are, we have so much, you know, we're barely in the beginning of a, of a voyage through a long intestine that, uh, you know, we got, we got a lot of way to go. And I, think, I do think, though, that broadly speaking, as well as in many specific applications, libertarian ideas and libertarian policies are the way forward.
0: I would agree. And I, and I know we got to wrap it up here because I know you have, to, uh, you have to jump off in about 10 minutes. But one thing I wanted to key on is you know, we talk about information being so available. We talk about people rising out of poverty and how the middle class is growing and how you know, the world's population that is in poverty is at its all-time low. We've got all this information. We've got all this uh, – maybe is it, is it a question of having too much information at times wherein we are now so inundated with the bad in the world? And rarely the good, except maybe on looking at someone's uh, you know, curated Instagram feed showing only the best vacations that go on. But are we now looking and saying, Oh, we're we're so afraid, not not you and I of course, but yeah. the broader we of society, that we are so afraid that now we're turning towards more government because there's so much more to fear out there who will protect us. Um, that's one question, and then mm-hmm. the second question uh, I have. Well, actually, go answer that first. It'll okay. well, take too long.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, part of uh, one of the things that's fascinating are, are the are the the kind of disconnects between. How people view their personal lives uh, or their personal situations and and broader kind of social trends. And so in the United States, if you look at Gallup or Pew or anybody who tracks these things, uh, you know, a a majority of people or a plurality of people at the very least will say that the country is headed in the wrong direction. But then a a majority of people and a super majority of people will say that their own situation seems to be better and they haven't had this much confidence in the future, you know, in, in decades and mm-hmm. things like that. So there's that kind of weird disconnect. I wrote a story for Reason about a year ago or so. It's up at Reason.com uh, somewhere, but about how um, low trust societies uh, reliably uh, call for the government, you know, low trust societies that know that, You know, everything around them is corrupt, especially the government that is designed to set up rules and protect people, like in in low trust cultures, societies, states, nations, where people know that the government is is just crooked and corrupt, nonetheless, reliably vote for more government power to regulate and structure their economy and kind of clean up the mess. I've already yeah, it is. And, you know, and I've argued that uh, the United States is actually uh, going from a high trust society to a low trust society. If you look again, looking at places like Gallup that have been tracking this stuff for half a century or more, um, you know, in almost all major institutions of life, including big business, including the government and the various parts of government, things like charities and whatnot, where mm-hmm. people believe that, uh, you know, these institutions are not You know, they don't don't really act well in most instances, yet we are calling for more government. And I actually think from a libertarian point of view, uh, we need to take this correlation and possibly a causation seriously that we have won the message as libertarians of saying that, you know what, government is incompetent at best and is like downright corrupt. Uh, you know, at worst, um, we've won that message. Most people kind of agree with that. They're skeptical of power, especially government power. Um, and yet we're, you know, we're surprised that people want more government, that we, you know, as as a society, we're voting in, you know, we're voting for more and more control and regulation. The size, scope, and spending of government can, keeps going up. And I talked to a bunch of uh, economists and political scientists, and they said, well, you know, when you feel like the world is rigged, when the system around you is rigged, uh, there is a human tendency to to want a strong man, uh, you know, a kind of despot who will, you know, not not just pay you off, but actually clean the stables a little bit. And I think there's, you know, there's some truth to that. And it makes me think, you know, that libertarianism needs... A slightly different messaging, uh, which is that we need to be able to show place, you know, spots where, and again, I'm not an anarchist and, you know, we can argue about, you know, what is libertarianism versus anarchism and everything, but I don't have a problem with a strictly, you know, with a limited government that does fewer things. It should definitely be doing many fewer things, but does them pretty well and also devolves power at all in all the policies, you know, should be predicated upon the idea of how do we get more power into the hands of individuals to make the decisions that matter most in their lives, whether we're talking about, you know, their health care, their education, their retirement, you know, uh, whatever. Um, but I think we, you know, we need to think about what are, you know, what are the essential uh, tasks that we're asking government to do, and then how do we, sh- you know, showing, Where um, the government can do those efficiently or has done those efficiently. And I actually think restoring a little bit of trust and faith and confidence in government um, might be a way, you know, counterintuitively to uh, getting to a place where people can relax and feel they don't need the government to do everything because they have more confidence and trust in their fellow citizens.
0: That is an interesting way to go about it. Yeah, It definitely is counterintuitive, but I can see what you're saying as far as manipulating people's fears and trying to push the needle the other direction. I mean, it also, it's kind of funny that talking about that strong man coming in and talking about somebody that's going to, I mean, Trump ran on drain the swamp, you know, that is yeah. the strong man you describe is what got elected. And Bernie Sanders is that in a different fashion going after the corporate right. elitists and the billionaires and the millionaires, you know, so people yeah, are looking Trump- for that without a doubt.
1: Yeah, and Trump, you know, uh, you know, whatever else you can say about him, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a hysteric about Trump. I know I know a lot of libertarians who are super anti-Trump. I know some who it strikes me as bizarre that are very pro-Trump. But I'm sure you get a lot of this where people are like, "How can you be against
0: Trump?" I I say somewhat ironically that he is maybe, maybe quite factually the best president of my lifetime. And I can yeah. that statement pretty thoroughly yeah. because there's they've been so terrible. All of them yeah, are terrible. That is
1: he- the soft bigotry of low <laughs> expectations, Right? Exactly. But,
0: exactly. but
1: you know, uh, you know, on a on a certain level, like he, the one thing that we do know is, you know, he's spending. You know, spending under his watch or since oh, yeah. he became president has gone up. Uh, you know, by something like uh, 10 or 11% per capita. We're spending, uh, I read about this last week, uh, we're spending something like uh, $1,441 more per person uh, now than when Trump, uh, right before Trump took office. And, you know, and then you immediately get all the Trump bots saying, oh, well, you know, the president doesn't really control spending, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like you get into these horseshit diverse arguments. But, you know, the fact of the matter is is that the size, scope, and spending of government continues to grow we are also doing things that are just egregious, uh, like you know, borrowing more and more money. We have more and more federal debt. I liken uh, you know uh, what we're doing now. It's uh, government by Groupon, where yes. we're essentially one out of every four dollars, uh, and it's actually getting more than that. But you know, one out of every four dollars the government spends is borrowed. So, you know, you're saying to Uh, You know, citizens like here for 75 cents, you can get a dollar's worth of something. Uh, You know, of course, you know, the smart move is to be like, yeah, I don't need the, I don't need eight gallons of ice cream, but you're giving it to me at 75 cents on the dollar. Of course, I'm going to buy more in a weird way. uh, And I don't I you know, I don't want to see taxes go up, especially to cover current government spending. But if people understood the actual cost of, you know, of the government that they're getting, they would demand less of it because it's not worth it. And, you know, the more that we clarify that government spending has absolute costs in the here and now, but also down the road, I mean, you know, persistent, large persistent deficits, uh, large and growing national debt is highly associated with uh, long-term economic uh, slower growth. This is something that Marxist economists at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, as well as market-friendly people all agree on. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we, we need to make these kind of things that are kind of either in the distance or, or are unseen—you know—we have to make those seen. The costs of government in all of its forms, and I think we'd be able to get a, a consensus on people saying, "You know what? We're like a pretty rich society here, and we can—you know—we can afford to do less. To ask the government to do less, give them less, and and focus that more on you know the things and the people that matter and that need help, uh, rather than just kind of—and this is where. What's problematic to me about the the current uh, you know presidential race is on the Democratic side, it's just we're going to give you you know ten times more than you're already getting right. or hundred times more, and then Trump is somewhere playing you know footsie with all sorts of things where you know and also taking away basic things like consumer choice, the ability of people to uh, you know decide where they want to live and uh, you know and other things and you know we I mean we need a reset. I think everybody knows that, you know, this is, we are living in a sitcom that is not working. It needs right. a complete reboot. And I'm hopeful uh, that because we have two, uh, you know, at this point, and, and again, you know, it may or may not be Bernie Sanders. We'll have a much better sense of that over the, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks. But, um, you know, we have two extreme versions of of kind of the reigning orthodoxy of the past 50 or 60 years. Uh, uh, Turnout—you know, fewer people want to be identified as Republicans and Democrats. Uh, These guys might be—you know—you have to you have to reach bottom before you can really kind of recover. And and I do think it's good that you know the further and the more extreme that Trump and and uh, Bernie Sanders becomes, it leaves more people in the middle, and I think more people prone to thinking about libertarian ideas. You know, do you want to have more freedom to? Uh, you know, figure out how to live your life. Uh, and again, you know, to tie back into kind of South Park and the mul- uh, and Rick and Morty and whatnot is, you know, we recognize there are many, many different ways to live. We accept, you know, individualization and mass personalization in every aspect of our lives. We demand it in every aspect of our lives, except our politics. And, right. hope, you know, we're, we're inching towards that final, uh, you know, kind of final showdown.
0: Well, hopefully. I mean, AOC, uh, one of the few things she said that was correct was questioning why she and Bernie Sanders were in the same party, and obviously that is a good example, as is Ron Paul being part of the GOP when he ran. And and, you know, one thing I will say, and and again, I know we have one minute left, so I'll be very brief and then let you uh, finish up by telling everybody everywhere to go to find you and find everything you're doing with reason. But, you know, playing into hitting rock bottom, allowing people to bounce up, taking advantage of an opportunity to educate, it does seem that we, I, I'm intrigued by the concept of getting people to look at ways in which government's working. But at the same time, I would like to see, cause I'm more of the anarchist side yeah. of things. but I, I would like to see the libertarian party also look for more solution based approaches because we're always the people, you know, the old man with the stick yelling, ah, yeah. slow down. But I want to see more solutions to these problems and, you know, to, uh, to use Obama's cheesy phrase of, yes, we can, you know, yes, we can, or, you know, let's a yeah, yeah. way that we can do this more effectively than government and put away those fears of people who question, who will build the roads and all these other idiotic, you know, uh, objections when we have solutions, but we need to show success stories.
1: Yeah, I agree. And we need to have a positive vision, which is difficult because there is no one, you know, there is no one preferred libertarian uh, solution to anything, or especially, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially how to how to live. I mean, the whole idea is that, you you know, you, you have life and liberty and you can pursue happiness as you define it. But I do think in certain things, uh, you know, we can we can show positive, uh, you know, policies that can reduce spending and increase choice. Uh, something like the school choice movement and when you and if you take that uh, broadly defined i think like a lot of libertarians uh you know in my heart of hearts i would like to see the state out of uh, any kind of educational role but uh, by the same token the idea of robust school choice whether we're talking about charter schools or private voucher programs or homeschooling or whatever we have this embarrassment of riches of people doing all kinds of models at fractions of the price of a traditional conventional public school education k through 12 and even through college which you know which embodies choice and that's one of the reasons why people remember college more fondly than uh, you know high school or something uh, but you know we can, we can point to that and showcase the the varieties of ways in which people are allowed to kind of figure out what they want and, and seek it out and kind of deliver on it. I think that we can also do that with uh, you know the way that voluntary solutions in the marketplace have done phenomenally to just improve right. our quality of life and that that includes you know looking at um, you know, the way that a a grocery store or a supermarket like Whole Foods has not only changed the way that we shop and what we expect out of a grocery store, um, you know, but it's changed the way people who work at grocery stores. There are non-union workers who are happier with their lot in life than the unionized workers at a Kroger or an Albertsons or a Wegmans or whatever. Um, And also, you know, I, I like to actually to use Whole Foods as an example of, you know, if you like Whole Foods, It is built upon a whole series of libertarian or liberal ideas, and you know, in the best sense possible, of things like free trade, of innovation, of Mm -hmm. experimentation, of allowing different types of people to express themselves, you know. Uh, You know, these are all good, wonderful things. And, you know, to to go back to things like South Park and uh, Rick and Morty, I mean, these are shows that… Our niche shows that would not have been possible in the old world of you know three broadcast networks, even even on cable for yep. you know i mean it 's like it took a while for them to get up to Cajonas to offer niche shows. We live you know in, in our cultural lives in most of our work lives, certainly in our personal lives. I think you know we live increasingly in a individualized and personalized world where you know, from day to day, we learn new ways of thinking about what do we want, how do we define ourselves, who do we want to hang out with, and, and things that are going well. And it's only you know, in the, in the world of politics uh, where there does need to be a consensus, there does need to be some kind of um, you know, uh, less fluid uh, system in place we can shrink that sphere of our lives down to the absolute minimum and then in all cases you know give people more freedom rather than telling them you know we want to cut pollution so you have to adapt this one piece of technology even when there may be better ways to do it or right. you have to take this subway and this highway or you have to teach your kid this thing when they're 8 years old and this thing when they're 9 you know we can loosen that up we can give you know if we're going to give people who are either um, you know who can't take care of themselves? If we're going to give them money, we can tell them you know here's here's a check for a hundred bucks. Spend it in the way that will best help you, as opposed to telling you well you can have skim milk and two percent, but you can't have whole milk because hey, that, right. you know then you'd be a fat load and that blah <laughs> blah blah. You know it's uh, I mean you know pushing towards where things have gone well in our lives and kind of figuring out how to adapt that to the political sphere uh you know and certainly uh, just because i i guess i feel like i'm purging here you know in <laughs> terms of our policy i mean well you know i guess one of the, one of the things to think about is um you know we, the world can become more libertarian even if the lp never you know never you know gets uh, you know, somebody in the White House or in a state house or anything like that. And in many profound ways, you know, we're we're in the beginning stages of the end of the war on drugs. Uh, we mm-hmm. have recognized alternative lifestyles in a way that was unimaginable even 10 or 15 years ago, where every politician now, including Donald Trump, you know, is nobody cares about uh, marriage equality and things like that. Uh, we're going through, you know, we're, we're, uh, emptying the prisons, which is long overdue, and it's something that libertarians have been harping on since you know the the buildup in federal prisons,
0: and, and something uh, which we should take far more credit for.
1: Yeah, well, and and, and also you know, and I was going to say in foreign policy, you know, the 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 basic libertarian message and vision of you know we want a we want a government that is strong enough for an army and a military that is strong enough to defend us uh, against you know attacks, but you know the idea that we are going to parachute in and, you know, and that's putting it lightly on I mean, where we're, we're going to dump millions of troops and, you know, drop thousands of uh, pounds of bombs all over the place and reorder the world doesn't work. Whereas we can actually have positive influence through things like trade and cultural exchange and and allowing people to come here, uh, you know, or, you know, and and work and live and, you know, either stay or go back. You know, we've, You know, the past twenty years has been a referendum on a foreign policy vision that was shared equally by, you know, Democrats and Mm -hmm. Republicans, liberals and conservatives, and it has been shown to be not just wrong, but you know, immoral and awful and just, you know, terrible. Um, You know, in 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 my happier moments, and I guess you know when the uh, when the drugs are kicking in, or you (laughs) you know, I forget what year I'm in. You know, the world is moving in many, many profound ways to a libertarian um, sensibility. And certainly, you know, just to tie it back into kind of cultural stuff, because this is electric liberty land and whatnot, you know, when you think about the variety of, you know, cultural goods and services that you can consume and produce, you know, the way that you want on the terms that you want, man, we are, you know, that is something that, you know, uh, Hayek and Mises and Friedman and Rothbard and everybody else, they could not even imagine. Oh, without you know, a, the, doubt. The yeah,
0: without a doubt. The cultural reach, any, I mean, God, you just look at it, the basis offerings of, you know, people that give makeup tutorials and have millions of followers and make millions of yeah. dollars on it. I love It's uh, something inconceivable, and yet it is, to your point, it is here, and we are seeing that it, it's not a free, free market, but we are seeing a, a far more freer market of ideas that are then turned into a way to live and, and a very capitalistic way of, of working around, at least on the internet. <laughs>
1: yeah. But very, I mean, an individualist, uh, you know, and and whatnot. So yeah, you know, So there's there's, I think, a lot. To, let's put it this way, you know, of the, you know, the the cultural arena, you know, and there are, there are issues there, but it's like it's a place where libertarianism, I think, is essentially one and it's a great place to hang out. Now we have to bring that same kind of freedom, decentralization, dispersion of knowledge, of you know. Uh, growth in self-expression and and volunteerism, you know, and cooperation to politics. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough nut to crack, but, uh, you know, I'm sure yep, people younger than me will uh, figure it out without any question.
0: <laughs> people younger than me, too. I'm yeah. too tired. <laughs> I uh, well, Nick, I, uh, I know you got to run. I want to thank you for coming on. Of course, Nick Gillespie, again, editor at large at Reason and uh, Luminary and Liberty Movement. So, Anything to, to tell people about? Obviously, you do your Reason interview podcast. You are still very active on the, on reasons uh, with the magazine and the website. Yep. You take part in the roundtable. What else can you tell the audience? Where can they find you and, and get more insights?
1: Uh, you know, uh, for me, like it all begins and ends with uh, Reason at Reason.com. That's where the pod, I do a weekly interview podcast. You mentioned the Reason interview with Nick Gillespie. We, uh, recent uh, episode, I, I talked to Rob Long. Uh, of, uh, uh, you know, who who co-wrote Cheers. He's a uh, a longtime contributor to National Review and other conservative publications and a psychonaut. We talked about psychedelics and why he's into them. Uh, You know, but you can find that at Reason.com, the Reason Roundtable weekly uh, kind of... uh, uh, you know, uh, Brook, between myself or among myself, Matt Welch, Catherine Ward, the editor-in-chief of Reason, and Peter Suderman uh, at Reason. That's uh, That comes out every Monday. Um, you know, all of my articles are videos, Reason TV. I, I helped launch the video platform uh, in 2007, so, you know, 13 years ago. That is up and strong. Uh, again, everything you can find at Reason.com. I'm really active on Twitter. My handle is my name, Nick Gillespie. But you know, I'm, I'm always happy to push people to reason. We are one of the last places that has unmoderated comments as well. So, you know, and that was an ideological decision that we made back in the very uh, late 90s and have stuck with. And, I love it.
0: I honestly, I swear to God, there's a lot of articles. I just, I'll go down the rabbit hole and some of them, you know, I'll yell at the screen. But I get on the rabbit absolutely. hole reading those comments. It's very yeah. entertaining. It's thought-provoking. I, I'm glad that you decided to take that policy. Thank you. All right. Well, once again, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, I hope you'll join me again sometime. This is a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, same here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for
0: the opportunity. All right. Thanks. Talk soon. All right. That will wrap up my interview with Nick. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I had a lot of fun. The time really kind of sped by there. I wish we could have gotten into even more stuff. There were a lot of things that he said that I wanted to talk moron, but you know, I just like one of those things when someone that has an interesting take is talking, it's hard to interrupt them because you also want to see what they're going to be saying next. <laughs> so I had to, I had to go against my base instinct of always jumping in. And you guys who have seen me drunk know that instinct all too well. <laughs> and I'm sure it'll be on display during our drunken democratic debate recap show, uh, which will be airing tomorrow. Uh, anyway, Awesome to have Nick on the show. And by the way, in case you guys don't know it, I actually do a recap show for every South Park episode, every Rick and Morty episode as well with good buddy Dan Smots over at the System is Down podcast. But that is for our pride members only. So if you want to listen to those, go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. It's a hell of a show. Speaking of good shows, guys, make sure to listen to Mark Clear on Mondays. He has had Nick on before, as as well as uh, Matt Welch, which I mentioned. But check that out on our Lions of Liberty flagship show every Monday. I, of course, am on Wednesdays and then Felony Fridays with John Odermatt. Bringing up the rear, the old caboose. That's what we call them. That's what they call them in prison as well for different reasons. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it for the show. Thank you from me, Brian Nick Williams. Thank you from the Lions of Liberty. And thank you from Electric Liberty Land. Always stay plugged into liberty.